The following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. Good morning, everyone. I hope you're all well and rejoicing in the Lord this morning. It's always great when you have a message to preach and it feels like by the time you get up, it's already been preached. Um, so, which means that I can go through stuff very, very quickly because you've already heard some of the stuff that I was going to say from uh, Dash and Rohan and Junine. And so, uh, it's wonderful when God is speaking to us through the whole service and not just in the 30 minutes that we actually come around God's Word. But as we do that, I encourage you, invite you to join me in preparing our hearts to hear what God wants to say to us. Why don't you bow with me as we pray. Father, we just ask for you to open our hearts even more, Father, in this moment as we come around your Word. Lord, you've already been speaking and we've been hearing you um, saying the same thing to us, reminding us of who we are in Jesus and so I pray that, Lord, as we now come uh, to this amazing moment, Lord, where we get to sit under your word, your living word, your active word, your powerful word, Lord, may faith arise in our hearts. May we be encouraged and strengthened. Lord, may we sense your Holy Spirit leading us into all truth as his ministry is. Help me, Father, to faithfully teach your word and to encourage us in this life you've called us to live, to remain faithful to Jesus. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. So if you're visiting with us, um, it's good to see Rowan and Layla and baby Easy here somewhere. I think that was her that was maybe escorted out. Um, wonderful to have them joining us and good to have you with us. If you haven't been in the last few weeks, we're uh, on a journey in a series where we're looking at serving and looking at how we can serve God in healthy ways. And we've, the last couple of weeks, spent time looking at some unhealthy ways uh, that we serve. Um, and that might be in terms of our attitude towards God. And we talked about how we could serve God because we're trying to earn His approval. We, we talked about serving because we want to get something from God, get His blessings into our lives, or to somehow pay Him back the debt that we, we owe Him for saving us. Uh, we talked about how we have wrong attitudes about others, and that might be that we serve to try and impress people or to advance our spiritual career in the church. Uh, we talked about wrong attitudes uh, about ourselves, where we either think that, you know, Jesus needs me because I'm so invaluable to God's kingdom, that I'm indispensable, or we go to the other extreme of going, well, I can do this without Jesus. You know, I don't even need Jesus. Uh, and we talked about how all of those unhealthy attitudes can lead us to a place of serving that brings us into bondage and, and causes a, a burden that crushes us and wearies us, not physically, but in our soul. And how Jesus came to liberate us from that and free us from that. So this week, we're kind of shifting direction a little bit and we're going to talk about healthy serving. We're going to be talking about what are the attitudes that should be driving our um, thinking about serving which is um, healthy and wholesome and will bring us to a place of freedom and joy and delight and liberty in serving, which is what Jesus wants for each of us. And so this morning, my message is entitled Secure. 
secure. And, and the whole idea in a nutshell is that I, I believe that to the extent that we are secure in who we are in Christ, in what Jesus has done for us, in who we now are in him before the Father, to the extent we know that and we're confident of that and we stand in that, that our, healthy, uh, our serving will be healthy. Everything we do, our Christian living, um, our worship in church, our worship in our homes, our worship in our workplaces, in schools, in universities, our serving, all of that will be healthy if we stand on the foundation of the gospel of what Jesus has done. And so the flip side is, I think, to the extent that we don't, to the extent that we forget who we are in Christ, to the extent where we try to prove ourselves and earn God's approval because we're insecure in his love for us, then our serving will lead to an unhealthy place, a toxic place. And so as a a launching pad this morning, I want to look at the passage very, very briefly, even more briefly now, that, that uh, Dash mentioned, which is the, in John chapter 13, where J- the foundation of Jesus' serving was in his security in knowing who he was. And John tells us that there were three things that Jesus was absolutely secure in. The, the first thing is that he had all authority all power. The Father had entrusted all things to him. And in Matthew 28, um, you know, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And Jesus knew that at the very core of his being. And the second thing that Jesus knew is that he was one with the Father, that his identity was with the Father, that he had come from the Father, particularly in John's gospel, over and over again, particularly in John chapter 10 and other places. Jesus is teaching that he was one with the Father, that the only things that he was doing were the works of the Father, that he, he was totally obedient to the, the words of the Father. He was submitted to the Father, and he even made this profound statement that the Father and I are one. And when he said that, people picked up stones to throw him because he was claiming to be God. The source, I come from the Father. I am one with the Father. The third thing that Jesus knew was his destiny. He knew where he was going. In fact, in John chapter 13, uh, verse 1, it says, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Even though the cross was still ahead, the horror of that, the pain of that, the suffering of that. Jesus knew well beyond the, the cross would be resurrection, would be ascension, would be seed, being seated at the right hand of the Father and being with the Father forever. Jesus knew his destiny. And because of that, because John, look the way John says it, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Now look at verse 4. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. The two thoughts are connected. Jesus was able to do this most incredible thing. I don't think we fully appreciate this. The creator of the universe who formed out of the dust humanity and breathed his very life into human beings is there before them washing their feet. How profound is that? I can understand why Peter freaked out, going, no, no, don't, don't do that. And yet Jesus was able to do that because he was so secure in who he was before the Father. He didn't need to prove anything. He didn't need to earn the Father's approval. He didn't need to get anything from the Father. He already knew that all of it was his. He didn't need to guarantee his eternal destiny because he knew he was going to the Father. 
he knew that he was the son, the beloved son, because the father had said that at his baptism. You are my son. He is my son, and I love him, and I am pleased with him. He knew all of those things, and so he could get down and wash the feet of the very lumps of clay that he put together and breathed into. And I am totally convinced that we too can have that same sense of security that Jesus had because who we are is all in Christ. It's in him. And to the extent that we get that revelation in our heart, I believe we can have that same sense of security that will enable us to take a towel, wrap it around us, and wash the feet of others. So I want to share with you three things. I mean, the Bible is full of different things it says about who we are in Christ. But just three things, because like Rohan said, three is a good number. Um, Three things of what the Bible says of who we are in Christ that I hope will really encourage you as you think about how to serve from a healthy place. Number one, we are Jesus' friends. We are Jesus' friends. And that, that is amazing. That is incredibly profound. Jesus in John chapter 15 says this, verse 15. He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. This is a very interesting passage because in John 13, the one I just referred to where Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, he says, here I am as your Lord and your teacher setting you an example. And here Jesus is saying, I no longer call you servants, I'm calling you friends. And yet he's saying, do what I tell you, I do what I command you to. So what's going on here? Is he my friend or is he my Lord? Maybe he's both. Well, it's not maybe, he is both. And sometimes... If we think of Jesus as our friend, we can be too familiar with him and forget that he's our Lord. And Jesus becomes my homeboy, my buddy, my friend, and we lose the reverence and awe to do what he says. But I think so often we tend towards legalism. We tend to seeing Jesus as our master, our Lord, the one to fear and revere, and we don't really understand the intimacy of friendship that Jesus has brought us into. A good way to think about it is, and I, I, this struck me when we were watching The Crown, and in the first series where uh, you know, Queen Elizabeth you know, and, and Philip get, get married and they have this relationship, and the weirdness of that relation, relationship where Philip is a husband but also a subject. And there were different times when you know, Philip would be saying things and, and he'd say, I'm your husband, and Queen Elizabeth would go, and I am your queen. I'm like, Wow, that's such a trippy dynamic. And yet that's what Jesus says. I am your master, but you are my friends. You see, what Jesus longs for us is to serve him not out of fear. Not, no, I'm talking about the healthy, not the healthy fear of reverence and all, but our fear of dread of a master who's commanding us to do. And we cower and we go, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. But no, he calls us to serve him out of the intimacy of relationship and friendship. How do I know that? Well, John tells us here, Jesus says two things. One is that he's a friend that lays down his life for us. That's not like what any master would do. He's a friend that is willing to die and lay down his life to show the greatest love that Jesus says anyone can show, which is dying for your friends. And Jesus has demonstrated that for us. 
But the second thing Jesus says, I, I, don't, I don't call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business, verse 15. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Intimacy, revelation. Jesus brings us into a place of knowing what the father is doing. And when he says everything here, he doesn't mean every fact, every, you know, it's not literally that he's downloading everything about the, the, the divine mind to us. But everything of God's will and purpose in, in, the, in the world, we're not left wondering what God is doing in the world. God has shown us what he's doing in the world. God has shown us why he's doing it. God is showing us his purpose and his plan for all of creation. Jesus has made known to us. So we're, we're serving out of this intimate relationship of knowledge. Let me illustrate it by saying this. When we were growing up in Sri Lanka, as many people here who've grown up in different kind of contexts, we had maids that helped us in our home. Now, I don't know any time my dad would sit them down and tell them his plans for the day or for the week or his plans for us as a family or his vision for us. He just told them what to do and they just did it. They didn't ask why. They didn't ask for reasons. They were just told what to do and they did it. Contrast that with when we were leading the youth ministry, we were leading it with our friends. Susan is here. She's one of them that were part of our leadership team. And we had an incredibly fun time of thinking and, and, and planning and dreaming and visioning. And I would come and I would share with them what God had put on my heart and what God was stirring in me for our youth ministry. And we would then sit together and we would plan and we would dream and, and we would work together knowing the big picture of what God was wanting to do. It was very, very different. And Jesus invites us to the latter experience. He says, you're my friends. When you understand that, who you are and who I see you as, that I've given my life for you and I've revealed the Father's will to you. I'm not here just to command you and you're not there to just cower and do. But out of intimacy of knowing, say, Jesus, I'm here to serve you because you're my friend. So... You know, in my last couple of sermons, I've been asking some reflection questions. People have been saying to me that that's been the most helpful part in the sermon. So I thought, oh, I better do that. So here's some reflection questions. How would your serving be different knowing that you're serving with your friend? How would it be different? How would it be different knowing that you're serving as Jesus' friend? Think about that. In your worship team involvement, in kids ministry, on the Sunday service team, hospitality team, wherever you serve, whatever you do, how might it be different knowing that you're serving Jesus, your friend? The second thing that the Bible tells us about who we are is that we're beloved. Beloved, and that's in Ephesians chapter 5. And again, these are all familiar things to you, but I hope that this morning, as we go over these things, and I remind you of them, that the cumulative effect will stir faith in your heart and bring security into your heart. And this is what Paul says. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy and cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless holy and blameless 
Paul tells us that Jesus is our husband. And we as the church are the beloved, the wife, the betrothed of Jesus. Now, the first thing that Paul tells us is that Jesus lays down, again, that language. He gave himself up for her. That's the language of the cross. That's sacrificial language. That the way Paul is describing that is Jesus' work on the cross. Jesus needing to die for us. And that begs the question, well, why? You see, because even though in one sense the story of the gospel is this incredible Cinderella story where Prince Charming leaves his palace and comes in pursuit of us, let's not be fooled into thinking that we're Cinderella's. We're not the glamorous, beautiful princess dancing with the king in the ball. No, we're the uglier of the two ugly sisters who are filled with selfishness and greed and coveting and all kinds of unimaginable things. And so when our Prince Charming comes to us, he comes to us when we don't even love him, when we don't even want him. When we have, we've turned against him, we've rebelled against him, we, we want to bring him down. We're treacherous and wicked and evil, and that's who the Prince Charming comes to save. And he just doesn't leave his palace and return to his palace. No, but he lays down everything. He leaves, he empties Philippians 2 language, empties everything so that he can become one of us, become like us. Prince Charming never worked in the, the stepmother's kitchen. N- never did a day. He, he just took Cinderella well back to the palace. But our prince comes. He becomes one of us. And he lays down his life as a sacrifice for us. Because without him, our destiny was eternal separation from the Father. It is to be in hell. It is to receive his judgment and his wrath. It is to be the furthest away from love and grace and joy and peace that we could ever imagine. And our Prince Charming comes and he sacrifices for us. But that's not it. Paul goes on to say that our Prince Charming, Jesus, our husband, he he transforms us. Verse 26, he makes us holy, cleansing us by the washing with water through the word. You see, Jesus, our Prince Charming, loves us too much to leave us the way we are. His love is not just a sacrificial saving love. It's a transforming love. It changes us as we realize how loved we are. Our hearts long to be with him and and to express our love to him. And that process begins to change us and change us to, to make us holy and cleansing us by the washing with water. You see, Jesus, he continues to show his love as our husband by transforming us to become the princess, as it were, that we are. You see, he takes us from poverty and he brings us into the riches of his kingdom. He he takes us from being beggars and enables us to sit at the king's table. He takes us, in the Cinderella story, from being enslaved in the kitchen to now sitting beside him on the throne. That is our husband, Jesus. But more than that, he does even more than that. 
Not only does he sacrifice for us, not only does he transform us, but he's preparing us. Look, look at verse 27. And to present us to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. See, Jesus is on a mission, and that mission isn't finished yet. He is continuing his good work in us, as Philippians reminds us, that the God who began a work will continue that to the day of completion, fulfillment, finish line. And that is when he returns again to receive us to himself. You see, Jesus not only has transformed us, but he continues to transform. Not only has he changed our status, but he begins to change us from day to day to reflect him more and more and more. He continues to purify us, continues to transform us, continues to refine us, to to prepare us for being his radiant bride that he will come to receive to himself. Every married couple will probably testify that the longer they've been married, the more they've become like the other person. Because we rub off on each other. And Jesus continues that work because the Holy Spirit is in us. And his mission is to make us more like Jesus. All the couples are looking at each other going, yeah. yeah." To make us more like him. To prepare us. Now here's the really, really cool thing from this. You know, so often we see our serving, our works of service as a gift we bring to Jesus. But Revelation 19 blows that out of the water. In the context of talking about the marriage feast and Jesus preparing this wedding day that he will come and receive us and take us to be with him. Listen to what it says about our good deeds. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Jesus' work in us has prepared us for this day. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. That's speaking of the wedding dress, right? And listen to what it says. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So let me unpack that. What it's saying is our good works are not the gift you bring to your husband. It's actually the gifts he gives you. It is, it is the wedding dress. It is the gift he gives you to give back to him. How cool is that? Your good works, your serving, is what Jesus gives you that adorns you in your wedding dress, your righteous robes, so that when, you, when he comes to receive you and you walk down that heavenly aisle, as it were, you'll be wearing the wedding dress that he has given you. How amazing is that? How cool is that? You see, like, it's like when you do something for your family. Maybe it's cooking their favorite meal or doing something else, because I know some of you guys, you wouldn't understand about cooking for your family. So whatever it is, doing something extravagant. Think about why you do that. Is it to earn their love? Is it to prove that you are deserving of something? Or is it because you just want to bring them delight? Because you know that they love that thing. That meal brings them great satisfaction and delight. And you gladly do it and you invest your energy into cooking or whatever it is you're doing with so much love because you know the joy that will bring them to be a part of that. So imagine how your serving would be different if you could understand that you serve as the beloved bride of Christ. What would it be like? How would your serving be different? 
if you carried that sense that you are serving your husband Jesus who loves you, who pursued you all the way to the cross, who sacrificed for you, who is transforming you and who is preparing you to, to be with him in glory forever, enjoying this married life with him forever. How would it make it different? How would your attitude be different to serving? Lastly, we are sons. We are sons of the Father. And we know we've been spending a little bit of time in, in Luke 15, which is the story of the prodigal. But this time we want to focus on the, on the younger son. And he comes to his senses. He realizes what he's done. In verse 17, he came to his senses and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Again, we're very familiar with this idea of being the children of God, being sons and daughters of God. But I want to remind you again how profound and how awesome this is. You see, as the younger son says, I am not worthy. He's right, absolutely right. We are all undeserving children. Undeserving. Like Cinderella or the ugly sister, we have rejected, just like this younger son, the love of the father. We've pursued his stuff and not him. And we've walked away and we've spent it all and we've ruined our own lives and we've been slaved to feeding pigs and in desperation trying to satisfy the deepest hunger and the longing of our heart with pig slop. We're undeserving. The son is absolutely right. What he deserves is to be enslaved as a servant, to be bound forever in that state of condemnation. We are guilty. We stand condemned. And we should receive nothing but judgment from the Father. But the second thing that's so profound is that we are adopted. We are adopted sons. We're adopted daughters. And now the moment we say adopted in a Western context, that sounds like, oh, we're second rate. But it's not the case in biblical times. In biblical times, every adopted child had the same full rights and inheritance as a true-born child in the family. No different. And we see that in this story. Look at what the father does. Even though the son says, I've sinned, I'm not worthy to be called your son. See, it's not up to him to decide that. It is the father's prerogative to decide who he's going to call son or daughter. 
And he does, and he says, this son of mine, in verse 24. And before that, he says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. He's fully reinstated as a son. No second rate. Not, no compromise. No, okay, well, you can come in as a son, but you know what? You, you can only have some of the privileges and some of the benefits of being a son because you blew it. You messed it up. You, you really spent your inheritance. Now there's nothing left for you. So you know what? You can come. You're welcome into the house, and you'll be a son, but you'll get the scraps. Not at all. He's fully reinstated, adopted with full inheritance, full rights of the Father. And that's why Paul in Romans 8 can declare so profoundly when he says this, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves. There's servant language so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. You have been adopted And by him we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. When you you get married to Jesus, you might think that maybe the father will be your father-in-law. But he's not. Because you're in Christ and your life is hidden in Christ and your identity in Christ. It's, it's like when the Father looks at Jesus, He looks at you. And when He looks at you, He looks at Jesus. There is no difference. You are so clothed in Christ that you are co-heirs with Him. You, everything that Jesus has is yours. His glory, His inheritance, everything is shared with you as the children of God. Uh, that's just mind-blowing. We are God's children. And because of that, we become co-workers in the family business. And Paul uses that language in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says that we are fellow workers with God. That the work that we do, the things that we do in, in our families, in our workplaces, at church, wherever we might be, he says that we are working together with our Father I wonder how the son's attitude was different after he came back. When he didn't want his father's stuff anymore. When he just enjoyed being in the father's house. When he just enjoyed the presence and the company of the father. I wonder if he would skip down to the fields afterwards going, I can't believe this. I was in a pigsty and now I'm back in my father's house. And nothing was too much trouble because he was in the family business. He got it. He understood that it was about knowing the Father's heart. And once he did that, I wonder if his his attitude to going out and working a hard day in the field completely changed because now he was a son in the house, just loving being with the Father. But the older son we saw a couple of weeks ago, he still missed out. And you know that one of the saddest things is when he come and, comes and complains to the father and says, you know, I just wanted a goat to have a party with my kids. And what does the father say? You know what? Everything I have was yours already. And I think so often we live like the older brother when we just don't realize that everything in the father's house is ours in Jesus. It's ours. We don't have to serve to get. We serve because of who we are. Sons 
loved by the Father, co-heirs with Christ. So why does the Father want us to work at all? If he doesn't need us, which we talked about last week, if he is the almighty sovereign God of the universe, why, why does he need me to do anything? Why does he need me to go to the field and work? Well, the best way to illustrate that is to tell you about the kids and I washing our cars when they were younger. I didn't need them to help me do that. And sometimes they cause more problems washing the cars than were actually helpful. But you know why I always invited them to come and help me? Because it was fun. And because it, I just enjoyed them being there. And you know, they'd play in the soap and before long the car got forgotten and we were throwing sponges at each other. And it was about the company and the enjoyment of doing it together. That's why the Father invites you. Say, hey, come, come with me. Because I enjoy us doing this together. I enjoy your company. And I enjoy it when we can do the same thing. When you're part of the family business and we get to do this together. How cool is that? How would your serving be different if you understood that? That you serve as a child of the Father with your full inheritance. And you serve because it it's just being with the Father and enjoying His company and just being a part of the work that He's doing in the world that He's already disclosed to us in Jesus. How radically different might it be? You see, as, as profound as all of this is, it's, it's not even the most amazing thing. You see, because... We could fall into bad habits. We, 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 we could so long to know God this way that we could fall into the trap again of trying to do good works to become Jesus' friends, to become his bride, to become a, a child in the, in the household. But see, the good news of the gospel is, the, well, the bad news of the gospel is that you, know, you could spend your whole life trying and you could try with all your might and you'd never be able to attain it. You'd never be able to achieve it. Never. No matter how perfect, how good, how righteous, how godly, how charitable, how kind, whatever it is, how much of that you were, you would never ever be good enough. Because the standard is not me, or it's not Mahatma Gandhi, or whoever the holiest person you can think of is, it's Jesus. It's his perfection. And all of us, the Bible says, fall short of that standard. Now, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus does it for us. And we've seen that over and over again as our friend, as our husband, and really as the faithful older brother who goes after the rogue younger brother, who is willing to give up his inheritance and go, brother, doesn't matter, come back to the father's house. He does that for us. So let me land this for you, and I hope this sticks with you. First and foremost, you and I are not servants. We are ones who have been served. It's, we are Jesus' friends. We are the bride of Christ. We are children of God because Jesus has served us. And in Mark 10, Jesus says this blatantly. The Son of Man, he, he did not come to find servants, to recruit volunteers he came to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for you. This profound statement, I wish I could take claim for it, but it's in the book that we've been working through by David Hindley. He says this, 
He says, Jesus extends to us the same call he extends to the early disciples. Not to come and serve him, but so that he can continue to serve us. Just think about that. Like when I first read it, it really stuck in my throat. I was like, whoa, I don't, I don't, don't." but it's true. That's the gospel. See, we we might begin that way and we might know that at, at our conversion, but somewhere along the line we forget and it becomes about now us serving Jesus. But the gospel is that Jesus not only serves us at the cross, but he wants us to follow him so that he can keep serving us. How does he do that? Well, the Bible says that he's praying for us. The Bible says he sent the Holy Spirit to be in us. The Bible says that he's with us. The Bible says that he gives us his gifts. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on of all that we have in Christ because he serves us. And so today, if you don't know Jesus, if you've not trusted him as your Lord and Savior, if you're not his friend, if you're not part of the bride of Christ, if you're not a child of God, you can be. Will you allow him, like the, the first disciples did with the story we began with, to wash you, to cleanse you in his blood, to, to, to save you? Will, you? will you acknowledge that you are the wayward friend? You are the ugly sister. You are the rogue son. Will you acknowledge your sin and your rebellion and come before a father who's not standing there in judgment or, or condemnation, but with mercy and love, running out to meet you, to embrace you and, and adopt you into his family? Will you come to him and say, Father, forgive me. I have sinned and I need your forgiveness in Jesus. Because he will. And you too will become part of his family. But for those of us who profess Christ and we follow him, uh, let me land all of this and say, well, what is our motivation for serving? What should it be? In light of all of this, in light of all that we are in Jesus, well, what, what should be our motivation for serving? Well, three quick thoughts. One, we serve to just delight Jesus. That's it. Because it brings him joy. And Luke chapter 10, this is the story when Jesus sent out the apostles and they come back and they say all the things that they did. They heal the sick and they cast out demons. And it says that Jesus was full of joy. Your serving pleases your friend. It delights him. It brings him joy. That's a great reason to serve. Secondly, it's to become like Jesus. You know, as Jesus continues to serve us and transform us by the Holy Spirit, we will become more and more like him. And if Jesus is able to, out of his security, wrap a towel and wash people's feet, then we want to serve to be like him, to be like our friend, to be like our husband, to be like our older brother, to be like Jesus. And lastly, we serve so that we can be about what Jesus is about what he's passionate about, what he loves doing in the world. The New Testament throughout reminds us that Jesus has called us to carry on his mission, his work in the world. We are his ambassadors. We're meant to be salt and light. We're supposed to be the incarnation of Jesus. We're supposed to be reflections of Jesus in the world. That that is what the New Testament tells us. But it also goes on to say that that's something we can never do in our own strength. And we are completely reliant on Jesus continuing to serve us through the power of the Holy Spirit. But we serve because we want to be a part of our Father's business. That's our motivation for serving. 
How does your heart line up? Are those the central three thoughts that grab your heart and mind when you think about serving? How does it change the way you might serve knowing that you are first and foremost someone who is served by the creator of the universe? If he does that for you, how can we not do that for others? Because we want to be like him. Let me close. And as I've been doing the last few weeks, I want you to bow your head. I want to close your eyes. And I want to leave you with God's word ringing in your head. And so this morning, the passage, if the band can jump up. This morning, the passage I want to let sit on your heart is one of the greatest passages in the New Testament that reminds us of who we are and all we have in Christ. And that is Ephesians chapter 1. Holy Spirit, I just ask, as I just read your word, that something will happen in our hearts. That, Lord, things that have been sinful and unhealthy and ungodly in our serving and our Christian living will fall off us as we get a revelation of who we are in you. And, Lord, a security will come into our heart that we've not known and that we will serve out of that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. In accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance 
until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.